Hey everyone, welcome. We're going to get started two minutes early because we're going to do some housekeeping announcement type stuff. Um, for those of you who did show up last week, apologies for the miscommunication. The, three of, the, the three of you that were here, uh, Jesus was with you and you fellowship and communed. But um, we are, welcome to the Bruce Chris Tuesday Bible study. We're starting a new year, we're starting a new book. We were in the book of Genesis for over a year. We went through and we, we dissected and walked through the book verse by verse. Almost all of that study, like chapters 14 through the end, are available online. Go to YouTube, search Disciple Dojo. That's the name of my ministry, Disciple D-O-J-O. And that will, uh, the link should pop up to all of the videos from each week. That's why the camera's right here, so we record these. If you can't make it on Tuesday, that's okay. We record it, you can catch up, because we build on what comes the previous week. As those of you that were with us for Genesis, you remember what would I tell you every week. Remember what we're talking about. Remember what we read last week. Remember the overall <laughs> themes. And that's the way that we encourage you to study the Bible here. It's not just a little nugget here, a little daily devotional there, a, a snippet here, a story there, but actually building on the narrative of Scripture, learning it the way the people in the biblical times learned it. They learned it as their story, their history, who they were, rather than bits and pieces and snippets and fables and things like that. So we're going through, and one of the things that I like about this study is we go through all of the book. We don't skip the genealogies. We don't skip the weird sections that people don't understand. We go through it all. Because, according to the New Testament, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful in training in righteousness. All Scripture reflects the heart of God and the person of Jesus. Even the parts that make us uncomfortable, even the parts that we don't understand, even the parts that sometimes bore us when we're reading them on our own. So we come here together, we read in community, we learn in community, and hopefully we get you in and out of here in an hour or less each week so that you can get back to work. So if this is your first time here, well, thank you for coming. Uh, the way we do each week is whether I make it here or not, at 12 o'clock, lunch is started. As soon as they bring the food out, you can start eating because you've got places to go. Um, but usually we start the teaching at 12.30. And we try to end it as close to one right on the dot as we can. Uh, the food is provided by Ruth's Chris. They do this as an outreach to the people in this business community in this area. So if you have friends that work in the area or even within driving distance, let them know about this because this is for them. Uh, the donation box up here, we ask that you put stuff in there. Uh, that's for the wait staff, for the kitchen staff that fix the meals each week. I don't get any of that. Ruth's Chris doesn't get any of that. That's for the uh, gentlemen and the ladies in the back that help us out. So um, be generous and be punctual when you can, but if you have to come in late, it's okay. We won't call you out, we won't ridicule you to your face. <laughs> Wait till you leave. So, we are starting the book of Exodus. Exodus, second book in the Bible. We spent over a year in Genesis, and does anybody remember, those of you that were here, what was the main theme of Genesis? What was the main point that I kept harping on week after week after week? What was the storyline in Genesis? The seed promise. Yes, you win a cheesecake. <laughs> the seed promise. The promise God made to who? Abraham, his descendants. The promise was in your seed, and that word seed is just like the English word seed. It's a collective singular. It can mean one, it can mean many, it can mean both. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So everything that God did for Abraham was for the goal or for the purpose, for the final mindset 
of redeeming and bringing back the nations into relationship with God. How did they get lost? Well, we see that in Genesis 1 through about 11 or so. And so the rescue plan of God for the entire Old Testament is he will use the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham will be his means of relating to this fallen world in order to be an example to the people around them so that then they will be brought back into communion, into fellowship with God, the one true God, out of their paganism, out of their polytheism, out of their godlessness, they'll be brought back into relationship with God through the people of Israel living as God's covenant people in relationship with him. That was the seed promised to Abraham. It would involve land, it would involve blessing, it would involve all these things. But the purpose was not because God thought Israel was great and he loved them and hated everybody else. The purpose was Israel was going to be his lifeline to reach the nations. Israel's goal, Israel's formation, their calling, their, their chosenness was always to go beyond themselves. They were always chosen for the purpose of being a means of salvation that God had established. That's crucial to remember because if you forget that, when you get bogged down, when you get into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you start thinking in these small, like, tribalistic mindset of, well, he's their national God, so he likes them better, and he hates the other people. And Genesis comes first for a reason. And I'll be hearkening back to Genesis a lot as we go through Exodus because Exodus literally picks up right where Genesis leaves off. The word, the name of the book in, in, in uh, English, Exodus, is, comes from the Greek name, and it means out of, or to, 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 come, to come out of, or to lead out of. The name of the book in Hebrew is Elah Shemot. These are the names. Because it's the first words of the, of the book in Hebrew. These are the names of the children of Israel. The ones who came into Egypt at the very last chapter of the last book, the ones who came down into Egypt, with Jacob, his family, there were about 70 of them. Now, Exodus picks up about 400 or so years later. And it says, now these are the names of the people who originally came down. This is what happened to them. Think about that. Exodus picks up 400 years after the events of Genesis 50. That's longer than America's been a country. Everything that the Hebrews know has been Egypt. It's been uh, many gods, it's been subjugation, it's been foreigners in a land not their own. 400 years. What was 400 years ago? Like 1615. So think of what was going on in the year 1615. That's the span of time we're talking about between Genesis and Exodus. Right? So it's kind of like when people always say, well, back in Bible times, I always laugh because I say, well, which Bible times? <laughs> massive periods of time. And there's 400 years of God not talking to his people in, in any recorded fashion that we have. 400 years of silence. There will be 400 years of silence at the end of the Old Testament, too, before Jesus and the New Exodus happens in the New Testament. So it's just important to wrap yourself around it, the, the, the mindset, the setting. Uh, who saw the Exodus movie that just came out? You don't have to be ashamed. <laughs> Actually, you do. It was a terrible. No, I saw it. Uh, I went to see it, and, and it was it was monumentally horrible because they spent so much money and they did such a good job making such a terrible movie. They gutted the story of the Exodus. They took out every bit of theological power and insight and and uh, wealth of information, and they just made it a story about a petty, petulant, uh, somewhat psycho God and Moses. 
and, and Moses, the, the guerrilla warfare expert and all of this stuff. So um, <laughs> the reason I mentioned that is because it, it, it came out right as we were getting ready to start uh, teaching on Exodus. So when it hits Redbox or Netflix, give it a watch, see what you think, compare it to the book because you'll be amazed at how different it is from what's actually in scripture. However, that's how it is with most people's understanding of Exodus. If you watch any of the, the movie, whether it's Charlton Heston, whether it's VeggieTales, The Simpsons did an Exodus episode, um, you know, Prince of Egypt, any of these things, everyone remembers the story, but no one knows the story. And that's what I found with the Old Testament Bible passages in general. Everybody thinks they know the story, and then you read it and go, I don't remember that part. Because we remember the, the, the nursery rhyme version or the, the Sunday school version, and we don't actually read the actual text itself. So what we're going to do over these coming months, we're going to read the actual story. We're going to go through the account, the Hebrew Bible. This Exodus is the gospel for the Jewish people. It's their gospel for non-believing Jews. It's Exodus is the, the, the equivalent of our Easter. I mean, it is the event that defines who the people of Israel were. Every time in the Old Testament after this, God will always say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought you out of the land of slavery, the God who brought you out of Egypt. The Psalms will sing songs about God who split the waters of the Red Sea, who delivered his people. They'll even ascribe it like mythological tones. They'll talk about God crushing the head of the sea serpent. You read that in passages of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Psalms, and you think, what's he talking about? That's how they describe the Exodus when God split the waters of the sea as the splitting, the crushing of the head of the chaos monster, the sea serpent. And if you were here for Genesis 1 and 2, you remember how we talked about that. So Exodus forms who they were as a people. It's their identity. It's their national identity. It's their religious identity. It was written to tell them who they are. Remember, the people first reading this in, in some type of written form, whether it's the final form we have today or whether it's a previous form that this is based on, first people reading this is the generation that has come out of the Exodus. Their parents died in the wilderness. They've grown up in the wilderness in Sinai. Now they're camped around the base on the, uh, of the mountain all overlooking the promised land. Uh, the plains of Moab, they're about to go into the promised land, and Moses is telling them who they are. And that's, that's the period of time of the people that would have been reading or hearing these stories for the first time. It's reminding them who they are where they came from, and why they're going to this land in the first place. Because it all goes back to a promise God made to their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham back in Genesis 15. And if you remember, Genesis 15, God made the covenant. And he said, I'm going to give you this land, but first, your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. They're going to be oppressed and afflicted, but... I will remember them. I will bring them out and I will bring them into this land that I'm giving you. But I can't do it now because the sin of the people that are in this land has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, God postponed giving Israel the land for 400 years because the people in that land had not deserved judgment at that point. But God knew by the time this time passes, by the time 400 years is up, these people will be ripe for judgment because of their wickedness and because of their evil. And on the same side, God and his plans always have multiple levels. At the same side, this will show who I am. This will show my identity. This will make my name known. And that phrase is all throughout Exodus. This will make my name known to all the nations of the earth. Because I'm going to use, I'm going to show my power against the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. 
at that time, which was Egypt. So God's got all of these purposes working together. He's stringing together all of these threads that, are, uh, that, that have been sprinkled throughout the book of Genesis. He's tying them together in the Exodus event. And so it's absolutely foundational for who the people of God are and for everything that comes after. There are whole New Testament books that are patterned around the Exodus. If you've done my class on Revelation, Exodus imagery is everywhere in Revelation. When Jesus starts his ministry in Matthew's gospel, Exodus imagery is everywhere. So if we know the Exodus, then when you read the New Testament, that's the beauty of studying the Old Testament, is the more you read the Old Testament, the more you get out of reading the New Testament. It informs how you read the New Testament. Uh, so by way of introduction, we're just going to kind of creep into the first chapter here and set the stage. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. It's going to give the names of Leah's sons first, if you remember the family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph uh, was already in Egypt. So it breaks down. Here's the family. Here are the people of Israel. Because remember, before Israel was a nation, Israel was a man. And that man had offspring, had descendants, and they became the heads of these tribes. So, so this is hearkening us back to Genesis. It's like a hinge verse. It's going to take us back to Genesis, all right? Here are the offspring. Here are the people of Israel. It gives us Leah's sons. It gives us Rachel's sons. It gives us Rachel's handmaiden sons. It gives Leah's handmaiden sons. All the sons of Israel. Verse 6, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Where have we heard that before? Fruitful and multiplied and the land was filled with them. That's, that's Genesis imagery. That's creation imagery. This is the God of the creation. This is Genesis 1 and 2 all over again. God is, it's, it's reaffirming. This is the God who creates. The mandate that was given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, cover over it. That's going on. This is the letting the reader know it's the same God. It's Yahweh, the one true God who created, is now in Exodus the God who redeems. And we're going to see both of those themes play out. Verse 8, then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the nation of Israelites, and NIV just says the Israelites, but the, the, the phrase in there literally in Hebrew is the nation of Israel or the people of Israel. To set them apart is distinct from the Egyptians. The nation of Israelites have become too numerous for us or more numerous than us. Your translations will differ depending on which one you read it. <clears throat> Verse 10, come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and, and here I'm going to pause because this is another translation issue. Now, those of you that are new to this, you may not realize, but the Bible wasn't written in English, <laughs> in IV, King James, none of those things, all right? It was written in Hebrew. And at times, there are more than one way to translate certain Hebrew things. And, and so different Bibles will differ on how to handle these things. Better Bibles will footnote when there's a possible difference and give you what you see, how it could be done, one of two ways. But not all Bibles can do that, just logistically, and, and they'd be so much thicker. Um, so there are times, I usually speak and teach from the NIV because I think it's fine, there's nothing wrong with it. But there are times when it gets it right, there are times when it gets it wrong. This is a good example of a time where NIV could very well get it wrong. 
This Pharaoh, I'll tell you what I mean in just a second. This Pharaoh who comes on the scene, this is years after the Pharaoh of Joseph's generation. And that Pharaoh, we don't know exactly who it is because Exodus never names the Pharaoh, which is a slap in the face to Pharaoh because they were all about naming themselves. You've been to Egypt, they're everywhere, right? Their tombs, their pyramids, their monuments. Everything was about the glory and the grandeur of the Pharaoh, except the Exodus. In the Exodus, Pharaoh doesn't even get a name. The title Pharaoh literally just means big house, because that's what the Pharaoh lived in. Um, it, it'd be like us talking about the White House, right? His president lives in a White House. It's kind of like that. Pharaoh is just the title, the Pharaoh, the king. Um, we don't know which Pharaoh it is. In, the, in tradition, some people have it as Pharaoh Ramses. And, and that's how it is usually in the movies. That would put the Exodus in around the 1200s BC. But other traditions have it as a previous pharaoh, I mean, Pharaoh Tutmosis or some of the other earlier pharaohs put it around 1400 BC. It doesn't really matter, give or take. Unless you're a real Bible nerd and really get into that stuff, it doesn't matter for the sake of the message of the Exodus. Because the message of the Exodus is this pharaoh, we don't care what his name is, he's the pharaoh. And he's oppressing God's people. And he's gonna learn a lesson from God. And so his name doesn't matter. It's inconsequential to the Exodus, which is really strange because the Bible goes out of its way to name so many other kings and so many other foreign rulers. So that should be something that you take note of when you're reading this is, oh, this Pharaoh doesn't even get a name. It's intentional. It's a downplay because Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's time, in all the Pharaoh's times, Pharaoh was God. Pharaoh was the descendant of Ray, the sun god. Pharaoh was the firstborn of the gods. He was it. There, I mean, there were all these other gods. You know, the Nile and, and was a god, and the sun was a god, and all of these other things were gods. But Pharaoh was kind of like the, the main one, the guy that called the shots. And he was the embodiment of the sun god. Well, in this account, he's not named, and he's going to get a, a major lesson in who the real god is, he and all his people. But what he's saying, what's his worry? What's his concern? The Israelites have grown, they've become more numerous than us, they, they, they've started you know, breeding like crazy, they've been fruitful, they've multiplied, all this stuff. And Pharaoh's worried, he says, come, verse 10, let us deal shrewdly or wisely, however you translate it, with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and NIV has leave the country. Escape from the land. Escape from the land, uh, whatever other depart translations have, depart go up from the land, something like that. If that's the translation, then what Pharaoh's worried about is he's gonna lose his entire workforce. He's gonna lose his entire army of slave workers, people that built the cities, that built the you know, monuments, that built all this stuff, he's gonna lose them. If, if, a, if an enemy comes in and attacks, and this had happened during these times, enemies would come, they would invade, and if you've got this massive population of people that aren't loyal to you, and they're loyal to your enemies, then when your enemy attacks and they decide, hey, we're tired of working for you for nothing, we're out of here. That could be one. The other, and I think it's a little more likely in, in some translations, it says they may uh, join with our enemies and take possession of the land, or they may rise up from the land. In other words, they may take over. And this had happened in Israel, in Egypt for a time, back around when Joseph was Power. Some people actually think the Pharaoh of Joseph's time was a Hyksos Pharaoh because he was so well disposed towards another foreigner, Joseph. Regardless, though, what Pharaoh's saying, so he's either saying if, if they're getting too numerous, they're getting too strong, if an enemy comes to attacks us, they're going to up and leave, and then we won't have anybody do our work. That's a valid translation. That's what the NIV has. 
Other way, other way of wording it is they'll join with the enemy, they'll rise up, and they'll overthrow us. They'll take possession of the land. The, the Hebrew text literally is they will go up from the land. That's all it says in Hebrew. So that can mean they will leave the land or they will rise up and take over. Either translation, the worry of Pharaoh is that these Israelites are getting too much to handle. They're getting a little too powerful. They're a demographic problem. We need to stifle this some. And so what he does is he says, let's act shrewdly or wisely. Uh, and he says, verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their, land, in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So it's, it's the case of trying to stop this flood of, of, of these foreign, not quite foreign because they've been there 400 years, but, but they weren't Egyptian. They were separate. They lived in Goshen. They herded animals. They were hairy. You know, the Egyptians we talked about in Genesis, they were the metrosexuals of the age. They were smooth. They had <laughs> eyebrows done. They were nice. These dirty, hairy Hebrews. Um, so they were just, they were seen as different, as the other. And what Pharaoh says, and the way he gets Israel, or he gets Egypt to actually actively um, oppress God's people, is he says, they're a national security threat. They're a threat to our national security. What if an enemy comes and attacks us? What if, it's amazing what you can get a population to do or to agree to when you couch things in the language of security. I literally could not have enough time to name how often that happens in our culture. We've seen it um, definitely since 9-11, but all over and all throughout history. How did Hitler rise to power? He promised security, he promised peace. National security is always the reason. Why do Christians, I, had a, I wrote an article a couple weeks ago, uh, it was called Torture is Antichrist, and it was when all the torture allegations the CIA came out. And I wrote an article saying, look, folks, you can be an American and be for torturing prisoners, but you can't be a Christian and be for that. There's no justifying it. And I got a lot of pushback from people. Well, it's, you know, it's national security. And I was just thinking, that's Pharaoh logic. That's, that's the tools of the enemy. That's not the tool of the Lord. That's not God's people's logic. And, and it's, it's, we see it in our culture all the time. If you want to get people to agree with something, scare them. If you want to get people to go along with something that would otherwise be atrocious, say it's for your own security, it's for your own safety. Think of the children. Right? Couch it in that language and people will go along with it, including enslaving an entire race of people and making their lives bitter. And so that's the tactic that he does. He uses this, this appeal to security. And it doesn't work. The more they oppressed them, the more the people multiplied. And so verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, and here's another NIV fun part, and observe them on the delivery stool. You can put that in quotes because we'll talk about it in a second. <laughs> if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. So this is the plan now. It goes from slavery to genocide. It goes from oppressing a people who are a national security threat or who they think might be a national security threat to infanticide, murder their male offspring so they can't grow, so they stop this tide, this plague 
this, uh, this problem. This is the final solution, BC version, right? Empires throughout history have done far worse um, and they always justify it by the same means. But anyway, um, so Pharaoh's plan is this. Okay, since the oppression and the hard labor is not going to work, we're going to just flat out kill all the boys, at least for a generation or two. That will stem the tide, if not you know, bring their numbers down significantly. The women aren't a threat. They won't overthrow us. You know, they're, they're going to be raising children and families and you know, doing it. They're, we're not worried about them. It's the men that we don't want to grow up and fight against us, so we're going to kill all the boys. That was the plan. And so he gets the midwives. He calls in the midwives. Now, we are in the day and age of hospitals. Uh, Pre-hospital, you had midwives. You had women whose expertise was helping other women deliver children because the number one killer of women in the ancient world was childbirth. It was a dangerous thing, and they needed skilled professionals. And so that's what the midwives were. They would come and they would assist in all the things that come along. And, and those of you that have children, I have not had children, obviously. Those of you that have, you know that there's all kinds of stuff that comes along with it. Medical complications and just your body does weird things and weird noises and stuff comes out. All this, you're just like, what's going on? Am I dying? I don't know. It's really scary if you don't have anybody reassuring you. So that's what the midwives were for. Now, it wasn't just that there were two midwives over all these thousands of Israelites, but these were kind of like, these would have been the head midwives. They would have been the ones who kind of oversee and train up the other midwives. There would have been a lot of midwives. Um, but the reason Pharaoh goes to them and says, here's what you're going to do. Whenever one of the women is about to give birth, go. And the phrase, the NIV phrase that says, observe them on the delivery stool. And uh, some translations say on, on the delivery rock or stone. And it gave rise to the idea that, that women would kind of squat or sit on a stool or a stone to give birth. And that, that happened in the ancient world. That didn't happen today. It didn't happen then. Um, it's just a guess based on a mistranslation. The literal translation, what it actually says is go and look upon the stone. Look upon the stones. That's what it says. Um, and it's really funny. This is why I like doing these Bible studies because here's another ancient Hebrew idiom for what it means if you said it in English. Like, how do you know if something, if, if the baby's a boy or a girl? Look at its stones. <laughs> right? If it's got them, it's a boy. <laughs> it's, a, it's an idiom for the, the genitals, the, 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 little, the little boy parts. Uh, that's what he's telling. That's how you would determine if it's a boy or a girl. There's no birthing stones or stool or any of that stuff. Um, that's just, it's a Look to the commentaries if you're interested in more background because it's kind of funny. But um, that's what he's saying. He's like, look, look, find out if it's a boy, which that's how you do it. You look at the stones. And if it's a boy, kill it. Now, how would the midwives be able to do this? How would they be able to get away with this? Well, because think about how easy it would be during the birthing process, during delivery. There's so much chaos. This is, remember, pre-modern science. It would be so easy for the midwife to kill the child right then. Why? Because a child being born or in the womb is at its most vulnerable point in human existence. You cannot be more vulnerable than when you're in your mother's womb or when you're being birthed. So it would have been so easy for the midwives to either cover the mouth, to you know, do something with the cord, to cut something, to smother, to do anything like that. And they could have passed it off as, I'm sorry, you lost the baby in childbirth. Because that happened all the time. Losing a child, it wasn't, I mean, it was fairly common. So it was this kind of secretive plan on the download. Like, hey, this is what you're going to do, midwives. You are going to do that. You're going to help control the population. We're going we're gonna to make some decisions here with the pregnancy. And you'll just say, OK, it's done. It's over. And that's going to get rid of the problem. And so Pharaoh went that route. However, look what the response is. 
the midwives, verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. The, the women feared God, meaning they didn't fear Pharaoh. Fear of God and fear of Pharaoh don't go together. And especially when Pharaoh tells you to do something that you know is not right. And so these women, these women, Shipra and Pua, their names are forever preserved in the history of God's people, but yet Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, we don't even know who he is. They fear God. They are the heroes of early Exodus. These are the women who were saving God's people. The idea that women don't play a significant role in scripture is often undermined by passages like this. Um, these women turn out to be more godly and more honored throughout history than this Pharaoh who built all these monuments and had all of this self-aggrandizing. Um, verse 18, we got a couple more minutes here. Verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? So this would have been a couple of years later. It wouldn't have been next week, right? This would have had time to notice, hey, this boy population isn't dwindling like it's supposed to. What's going on? So bring the heads of the midwives back in and have a talking to with them. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They are, and NIV has vigorous, <laughs> and give birth before the midwives arrive. The other way that that could be translated is they are involved or active. Uh, either way, either work. So either the, the midwives are saying, well, these, these Hebrew women, they're not like you dainty Egyptian women that just wait for the midwife to come and do everything. No, they give birth and boom, they're gone, they're, they're ready. Or he's saying the Hebrew women are more active, they're more involved in the birth. They don't just wait and let the midwife come and do it. They actually have the child and they help one another and they get involved and regardless of what it is the, the answer that it gave was a dig not just at, or it was a dig at the Egyptian women like an offhand slight like hey these women they aren't you know this isn't really easy with these women these Hebrew women are tough or these Hebrew women are responsible we can't do this without them finding out whatever the reason is they they just answer them in a way that's not a lie for all we know, the, the midwives, you know, they could have told all of the Hebrew women, hey, make sure you have your child before we get there. You know, something bad happens and we can't, you know. They could have, there would have been ways that this could have been alerted throughout the community. So some people have said, oh, you know, midwives are lying and that's wrong and this and that. But if it comes down to it, when you have the choice between lying and genocide, go with lying every time. <laughs> so uh, final verse. Uh, God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So finally, at the end, Pharaoh out and out says, all right, we're done with these Oppression didn't work. Secretive sex selection birthing orders didn't work. We're just going to flat out kill them. Any boy that's born, throw him in the Nile. The irony is the Nile was the source of Egypt's fertility. The Nile was the reason Egypt was the breadbasket of the ancient world. The Nile was seen as a deity that brought forth blessing and all of the fertility and all of that kind of stuff. And that's what Pharaoh says, throw all the boys into it. And so it would have been a case of, well, if we throw them in the Nile and they die, that's just an offering to the God, and, and it just means that the Nile took them, and what can we do? So um, there's a lot of, of, of not just political and social stuff going on, but also theological. 
idolatry and paganism going on in here. We'll see it in the next chapter. And the ultimate irony is Pharaoh deciding to kill all the uh, men of Israel in the Nile by drowning them. That's major irony for how Pharaoh's own army ends up dying in the Exodus account when they get to the Red Sea. But we are one minute over, so get out of here. We'll see you next week, and uh, check the website if you can't make it and you wouldn't need to catch the videos each week. All right, bye.